Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our study into the book of Isaiah by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here is this week's message. You have your Bibles there to Isaiah 53. We've been focusing on what we have called the gospel according to Isaiah 53. And just as we introduce this particular message today, it's going to be focused on verse 9. I thought it would be helpful to remind us why study the gospel according to Isaiah 53. And, and it's kind of what Gary was talking about earlier. Because the most important thing is eternity. Right? The most important thing is eternity. Now, I know today you may have things pressing in your heart and your mind that you think are really important things. And I'm not saying they're not important. But the most important thing in your life is eternity and where you are going to spend eternity. Now, everything else is secondary to that. Where are you going to spend your eternity? Now, Isaiah 53, we're going through that because, first of all, if you're a person who's a believer in Jesus Christ, I want us to go through Isaiah 53 so that it builds your confidence. It builds your confidence in what you believe and what you have because you'll come to understand that God's plan of salvation was not only planned before eternity, but God's plan of salvation was foretold hundreds of years before it happened so that you might understand that this is the work and plan of God. It's not just an accident. It's not just a story. See, there's no way to manipulate history over hundreds of years. So when we read in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus comes, we read these details of what is going to happen. It builds our confidence that this thing must be true. It has to be originated by God. It has to be orchestrated by God, for he foretold it, and it has become true just as he said it. And I want you to have that confidence in your heart that you know that what you believe is truth and that your eternity is settled because you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But if you are here today and you have not yet come to that time whenever you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've not yet asked him to forgive you of your sin, to believe that he is the Son of God who came and lived here and died on the cross, then I want to provide for you historical evidence that points to the most minute details, the most minute details in the events that are going to happen so that you might understand that this is the fulfillment of God's plan, God's promises, and it might give you encouragement and strength to make that step of faith and to believe in Jesus. That's what we want. We want you to believe in Jesus and And to know those minute details that it was told here, and it happens exactly that way. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Just to review where we've been in Isaiah 53, in in verses 1 and 2, it told us how he would come. He would come as a baby. It told us in verses 3 and 4 how he would be received. He'd be despised and rejected, seemed as though he is smitten of God. It tells us in verses 5 and 6 how he would suffer, how and even why he would suffer. 
In verse 7, it tells us how he will respond to that suffering that he's going to endure. In verse 8, the last time we were together, it told us that he was going to die. And why he died, whose place it was that he took. And now we're in verse 9. And it's going to tell us not only how he dies, but in his death, what happens. What happens? Two events are recorded there that say that happened in his death. And, and those minute details that he's going to write out are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. That's the first thing, right? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. But here's the second thing. Yet with a rich man in his death. Now, those are contradictory statements, aren't they? I mean, look at it again. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. How could that be? What's he talking about? How could that possibly happen? Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Two events. He was assigned to the grave with wicked men. Yet in his death, he was buried with a rich man. How could those two things? Well, those two things are recorded in the gospel. Those two things are, are pictured in the gospel. Matter of fact, here's an unusual thing. You need to write this down in your notes, okay? Here's a very unusual thing. Those two events are recorded in all four gospels. That's unusual. You have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and many events are, are recorded in theirs together, but John usually is a little bit different. And there are only a few stories and a few events in history that are actually with minute details recorded in all four of the Gospels. But these two events are recorded in all four Gospels. No matter which part of the story you're going to read, you're going to find these two events. It's going to tell us that he was assigned, his grave was assigned to wicked men, but yet he was buried with a rich man. How does that take place? Well, let's focus on one of those Gospels. And then we'll pick out some other places and other points of other Gospels. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And I want to ask you a question as you turn there. When Jesus died and he hung on that cross, did he hang on that cross by himself? Was Jesus hanging there on the cross by himself? I ask you a question. Okay, thank you. That's usually what you want. You say a question, you want somebody to answer, all right? Was Jesus hanging there by himself? No. Jesus was hanging in the middle, and it says that who was hanging with him? Two what? Two thieves or two criminals are two wicked men, Right? Two thieves, two criminals are two wicked men. Now, we know they're criminals, and we know they're wicked men, and we know they're deserving to be on the cross. Do you know how we know that? Because of their own testimony, of the own testimony that is recorded here in Luke chapter 23. Now, look what it says in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. 
And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and other on the left. Okay, so we know that when Jesus is crucified, he's crucified with criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Listen to what happens here when it says in verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Listen. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Listen now, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. What did they say? What was it? Hey, we are criminals. We are wicked men. We have done things that are wrong. We are being punished. We're getting what we deserve. They're not trying to defend themselves. Talking to a lawyer one day, he said, the one thing about all criminals, there's nobody guilty. The jail is full of everybody who's innocent. They're there for the wrong reason. Not these guys. This guy hanging on the cross, he says, I'm a criminal. You're a criminal. We are sinners. And therefore, when it says that his grave was assigned to those with wicked men, he is there hanging on the cross until he will die. Until he will die, and he is surrounded by wicked criminals who admit their own sin. Isaiah tells us in verse 9 that his grave was assigned to wicked men. Now you say, he's hanging on the cross. What's that got to do with the grave? Because whether it would be the Roman culture or or the Jewish culture, this is what would happen to those criminals ordinarily. Whenever they would have died on that cross, the Romans would dig a grave right near wherever the cross was, they hung on that cross, would dig a large grave, put all the criminals in it and bury it. They would be buried together right by that cross. Or either they would dig individual graves and they would be buried right there where they were crucified. That was the Roman culture. So what should have happened to Jesus is that when Jesus died, along with those two criminals, when they died, they breathed their last, they'll be taken off that grave, they'll dig up that, taken off that cross, dig up the grave, put them in that grave and bury him. His what? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. That was what was the destiny of him. That was the assignment of Jesus. Or whether it would be in the Jewish culture. If these criminals have to have been Jews and Jesus was a Jew and the Romans said, you Jews take care of your own criminals, they would have taken those criminals and they would have taken them to a place like the potter's field. The potter's field was a place where poor people were buried or criminals were buried or someone who had not a place to be buried. And it was just a place where they put those bodies, dug up the graves and put them there. That would be, there would be. So even in the Jewish culture, it would have been that he would have been assigned his grave with those who were wicked men. So it tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 9, it tells us that this one who is the anointed servant, who is going to be the one who suffers for your sin, who is going to die for your sin, and he has all of that for you, 
that when he dies, he is going to die around wicked men. He's going to die with those wicked men and that his grave should be assigned to those wicked men. That was true. Just like that. Go, go and read every one of the Gospels. Every one of the Gospels record. And he was hung there with two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. It talks about how he was assigned to grave there with wicked men. Well, there's the second event. But before we get to the second event, I want you to see what it said prior to that or after that in in order, but really explaining what happens to him at the grave. Look at verse 9 again. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. We'll get to that in just a minute. But listen, although he had done no violence. In other words, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men, even though he had done nothing to deserve it. In other words, this, this anointed servant who is going to be hanging on that cross, who's going to die with these wicked men, who's going to be in a grave with these wicked men, he's going to have done nothing to deserve it. And we know that the Lord Jesus did nothing to deserve it. I mean, they couldn't even find witnesses. They had to pay witnesses to come bear false witness against him, right? And we know that he didn't do anything to deserve it. There was no violence found in him. Now, I want to give you three of the most unlikely witnesses to that truth, right? Three of the most unlikely witnesses to the truth that Jesus did nothing to deserve hanging on that cross, being assigned with wicked men. He had done no violence. The first of those people would be Pontius Pilate. Back there to Luke 23. Hold your hand there. In Luke 23, he was brought before Pontius Pilate. All right? And, and this Roman official, this Roman government, governor who has authority, he asked Jesus questions, and he comes out. When he asked Jesus questions, look what he says in verse 4 of Luke 23. And Pilate said to the chief priest and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Would Pilate be an unlikely testimony that you'd have about Jesus? He is a testimony that says, Pilate says, there is no guilt in this man. He then sends him over to Herod's house, and Herod tries him, and Herod sends him back. And in verse 14, this 13 to 14, this is what Pilate said. And Pilate summoned the chief priest and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. A second time he gives witness, there is no reason. There is no sin. There is no violence. He does not deserve to die. Pilate is an unlikely witness and testimony to the innocence of Jesus, but he was. But not only Pilate, also King Herod. King Herod was not the most noble man. But Pilate sent sent Jesus over to King Herod. He sent him over to King Herod and said, you try him and you see what you find out. Listen to what Pilate says when Herod sends Jesus back from having that examination. Look at verse 15. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. That's what Herod said. 
Even Herod said, nothing deserving of death, nothing to dine on a cross, nothing that is grave to be assigned to wicked men. He has done nothing wrong. So Pilate and Herod both say he's done nothing wrong. But I want to give you a third witness of his innocence. And that happens to be the thief on the cross. We read it for just a minute ago in verse 41, I stopped before he got there. It says, here's the thief hanging on that cross. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Listen to this next statement. Listen. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. So three testimonies, Pilate, Herod and even the thief hanging on the cross bears witness to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 9, that he has assigned a grave with wicked men even though there was no violence in him. Nothing deserving of that death. An innocent man hanging on a wretched cross between other wicked men. Why? Because of us. For us. Go back to Isaiah 53, verse 9. He didn't just say that he was assigned to be, the grave assigned to be wicked men, although he had no violence. Listen what else it says. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Let me tell you, if you want to find out what's in the heart of a person, just put them through persecution and pain. Amen? If you want to find out what's in the heart of a person, just put them through persecution and pain, and whatever's in their heart is coming out their mouth. What did Jesus say? Jesus says the mouth reveals our heart. Isn't that true? Our mouth reveals our heart. So whenever Jesus, the Isaiah anointed servant, is going to be assigned this grave and going to be punished and suffered and he's going to die, what does it say about him? That there was not any deceit in his mouth. In other words, there was going to be nothing that comes out of his mouth that is going to reveal a wicked or wanting heart. That that he's going to reveal by what he says that there's no deceit in his heart. I hope most of you have gone through the study of the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. Do you realize that there were seven things that Jesus said, seven statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. And none of those statements reveal any deceit in him. None of those statements reveal any deceit in him. Let me give you those seven statements in case you haven't had them before. I'm not going to give them in chronological order because I'll share with you the significance of that in just a moment. The first thing he's best known for is, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they're doing. Does that sound like deceit? Does that sound like a deceitful heart? (laughs) Father, forgive those who are crucifying me. They don't know what they're doing. A second one is, I am thirsty. What that reveals? That reveals the humanity of Jesus. He wasn't just God hanging on a cross. He was a man hanging on a cross. The suffering that Jesus went through is the same suffering you'd go through if you were hanging on a cross. I am thirsty. Then he said, looking at his mother, Mother, behold your son. Meaning two things. Behold your son. This is what I came for. This is what was prophesied about me. But then he also is pointing to his disciple John. And he's saying to John, to his mother, Behold, he is now your son. Then he next looks at John and says, Behold your mother. And what he was assigning to John was that John would have the responsibility of taking care of his mother. Jesus was the oldest son. More than likely, Joseph must have died. Jesus is the oldest son. It's his responsibility to take care of his mother. And he tells his beloved disciple, John, you're going to take care of the most precious thing that I have. You're going to take care of my mom. Do you see any deceit in that? Find any deceit in that? Then he says, it is finished. Tatalestai. It is finished. Then he says, and unto thy spirit, I, I commend my spirit unto thee, O Father. I commend my spirit unto thee. And then there's the seventh one. Who remembers what the seventh one was? What was that seventh saying of Jesus on the cross? What was it? I hear whispering. What is it? What is it? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's recorded in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Now, when you hear that, the reason I say it the last one, you hear that, it can almost seem like there's a little bit of anger there, a little bit of, why would Jesus say that? And I want to get that into your heart and your mind. I want you to think about that. A couple, a couple of things are important about that. One, one thing is that whenever he said it, he spoke it in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lam sakabakdani. Yeah, I, I've seen people before who, who believe that speaking in tongues is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. They'll say, even Jesus spoke in tongues right there. That's not Jesus speaking in tongues. The reason it's written that way is because it was in Aramaic. New Testament is written in Greek. But when Jesus spoke those words, he spoke those words in Aramaic. You know why? Because Aramaic language is a common man's language. And he wanted every person who heard, he wanted every person who heard him to know in common man's language what he's saying. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's all kinds of explanations to be given about that. One is that the Father has allowed him to become sin. He's bearing the sin on the cross. The Father had to turn his face away from sin. He cut out the whole lights of the world. All those things can be true. All those things probably are true in regard to that. But here's a very important thing that you've got to remember. Something you need to know is that what he was really saying is this. Read the gospel. Read the gospel 
according to Psalm 22. Or read the gospel according to Psalm 22. You, you mean there's another gospel in the Old Testament? Yeah. There's the gospel of Psalm 22. You say, well, why, why wouldn't he just say, well, read the gospel according to Psalm 22? Because there was no Psalm 22. It was not till later that the Psalms were given numbers. But do you know how the Psalms were identified? The Psalms were identified by the very first line of the Psalm. The very first line of the Psalm. So if you heard the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that is what? Psalm what? 23. So when Jesus says, my my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is quoting the very first line of Psalm 22. And he's saying to them, go back and read Psalm 22. I challenge you to do that today. It's the gospel according to Psalm 22. You know what Psalm 22 describes? It describes the crucifixion of a man before crucifixion was ever a means of killing someone. It identified the the piercing of the hands and the hanging on a tree before that was ever a method. The Romans didn't know it. The Ethiopians are the ones who developed it. The Romans perfected it. But whenever the psalm was written, it was never used. How did they kill people in that day? They stoned them. But the psalmist writes in vivid detail how this one is going to come, how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die. And Jesus is saying there, read the gospel according to Psalm 22, and it will tell you why I die. So once again, no deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. Well, that brings us back to the last part of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, that part we skipped there. His grave was assigned to be with the wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. What's he talking about? You know. Go back to Luke 23. Luke 23. It tells us something that that is just unusual. It, it, it tells us something out of the ordinary had to take place. It, it lets us know that, that God had written down these details 700 years before it happens, knowing what's going to happen. And what was that? Well, it tells you this. Look at verse 50 of, of Luke 23. I told you it's recorded in every one of the Gospels. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Recorded in all four of the Gospels. This man named Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, though a righteous man who did not agree with what they had done. 
It tells you some other things about him. He was a disciple and a follower of Jesus. It tells you something else about him. It was, he was a secret follower of Jesus. Because he didn't have the courage to stand up against the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, it tells you he is a rich man. And you know he's a rich man because he had the ability to go and, and to take up the side of a hill and to cut out and hew out a, a, a burial place, a, a place for him and his family to be buried. That told you he had great wealth. Joseph, this man who was a secret follower, who was a rich man, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, a secret follower of Jesus, he finds the courage that when Jesus dies to go and ask Pilate for his body. Where in the world did Joseph find that kind of courage? Because God said 700 years before, there's going to be a rich man who's going to rise up, and that's where Jesus is going to be buried. Not with those criminals, even though his grave was assigned there. So Joseph finds the courage when all this time he's been a secret follower. He finds the courage to walk in and ask Pilate, can I have his body? And then Pilate, for no apparent reason, gives consent that he might have the body of Jesus. Then Joseph and Nicodemus, you remember him in John 3, don't you? Who came by night. They take him and they prepare his body, wrap it up, and place it in this tomb. This tomb, it is a shallow cave is what it is. It's a tomb in the side of a rock. They place his body there and they cover that with a stone. Now, whenever you, if you ever get to go to Israel, take the chance to go to Israel because it will bring your Bible alive to you, okay? Because you need to get in your image what happens in these tombs. A rich man's tomb was not that you had a tomb for one person, but that tomb was used by that family. Whenever you'll take and they carve out that tomb inside of that hill, it is a place, actually two compartments. There's a place where people would stop and would visit there for that, kind of like we would do at that point, and a place where the body would lay. And in that compartment where the potty would lay, it was not a closed-off area, but actually there was a hole in that tomb that was vented for air. Why? Because it was to speed up the decay of the body. It was to accelerate when the air got to it, to accelerate the decay of the body. Because what happened there, they didn't just do like we do, put them in the ground and they stay there. They would put them in that tomb, and then about a year or so after they'd be in that tomb, when the decay had taken place, and now it is just bone, they would go and they would collect the bones, and they would put them in bone boxes. In Israel today, you see these boxes where they put them in bone boxes. And those boxes then could either stay in that tomb or they'd be placed somewhere else. But they'd take the bone box and put them in that place of tomb. And then it would be ready for somebody else. Somebody else could be buried there. And that same process would go on and on. This tomb had, listen, was brand new. It was for Joseph and his family. And no one had ever lain there. There was nobody else in that tomb. Now, that's important. You know why? Because what was going to happen on that Sunday morning 
If there had been somebody else in that tomb at the same time it was that Sunday morning, they'd have probably come walking out too. Amen. Bless God. Because the power of God came to give him life again. And what was going to happen was in a place where nobody had ever been before. For even though the assignment was made that he would die, his grave would be with criminals, yet with a rich man in his death. How could that happen? Except that God would engineer it. Why don't you try to explain it? Why Isaiah wrote 700 years, those details, and they were carried out with some of the most unlikely people in the most unlikely ways, just like God said it. Because he's trying to paint a picture for all of us. (laughs) That this thing about Jesus, that this story about the gospel, that this revelation about the Son of God, about his death for you and your salvation, opportunity. It's something you can be confident about. You don't have to whimper around and hide about it and wonder if you really know. You can be confident about it. No one else in any of their experiences of all of life could ever have so much of a basis historically as to what they believe and what they ha- has happened to them has already been told about before it happened so that when it happened, we know it's God. We know it's God. And if you're here today and you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never put your faith and trust in him, you're wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really the way to salvation? God can't do any more than God's done. To reveal to you that, yes, this is my son. I told you years before so that whenever he comes, those minute details that cannot be manipulated over hundreds of years of history have taken place so that you might believe, so that you might respond, so that you might hear the gospel According to Isaiah 53. If you don't know Jesus, friend, you need to know him. If you do know him, you got good grounds to stand on. To the point that you know with all certainty that if I died today, I would go to heaven. If I died today, I know I'd go to heaven. Not on the basis of me, on the basis of him. On the basis of his promise. On the basis of his son. On the basis of his grace, I know I have that. And God's word affirms that in my heart. Do you have that? If you don't have that, you need to have that today. You don't need to leave this place today without giving your heart to Jesus, knowing him as Lord and Savior. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. 
I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.